distance balls. Sure, they go far, but do they do anything else? The new ERC Soft does. Callaway completely reinvented the way a distance ball performs. Engineered with a new, fast, hybrid cover and a graphene-infused dual soft-fast core, it's a new kind of distance ball, one that actually feels soft and spins more. And once you're on the green, ERC Soft's triple track technology will help you dial in your alignment. Get Callaway's longest ball with soft feel today at callawaygolf.ca. Some very ambitious climate change goals are being talked about quite a bit during this federal election. But will Canada actually be able to put these plans into place? I'm Emily Jackson, and this is 10-3. Dave Breckenridge is away. Today, my guest, Tom Spears from the Ottawa Citizen, walks us through the history of big climate change commitments and how government after government has failed to meet them. Please subscribe to 10-3 on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I know that climate change has been really front and center during this election campaign. What is Canada's record so far in meeting its climate change commitments? Uh, Well, it's not very good. And uh, the reason I got into this story is I've been the environment reporter and or science reporter on and off since 1988. So I've seen a whole uh, series of these commitments come and go back in 1990, 91, 92. The city of Ottawa, for instance, was promising to cut all its emissions by half. Uh, They never did that. They've gone up instead. Federal government made big promises in, let's see, 92, 97, 2009, uh, 2015 to make major reductions. Uh, again, we haven't made any reductions. Our emissions keep climbing. So we have this pattern where on paper, we look good because there's a target and a commitment. But in reality, in fact, you know, what's in the air, uh, things get worse, not better. You're speaking about, you know, Kyoto, Paris, Copenhagen. Yeah. What were these? Yeah, and Rio. And Rio, of course. So what were these commitments that we were making when we went to these international conferences and said, you know what, yes, we are on board with this. You know, they differ a little bit from one to another, but they're basically promises to take whatever we're emitting at the given time and cut it by uh, something in the range of 20 to 30% over a period of, it's usually five, six, seven years. Now, as I said, some differences, uh, but there's, and they, they, they keep stretching farther into the future. You know, we miss one, so we'll make another commitment to do things better at a later date, and then we'll commit again to do something even better at a later date. It's like the guy who's going to pay you back the $20 next week, uh, <laughs> but he can't do that. So he'll pay you $30 the week after that, and 35 if you'll wait a month, and then you never get your money. And these promises just keep getting bigger and bigger as we aren't seemingly making a dent in any of the action. Why do you think it has been such a challenge to actually follow through with these promises? Because I, I don't think the people making the promises realize that it's really very, very hard to wean a country off uh, gas and oil. You can get rid of coal to some extent. It's the dirtiest of the fuels. But, you know, we don't really have the technologies yet. And in fact, a lot of the papers from the federal government say, well, we're going to make these future uh, commitments, but they depend in part on technology that does not exist yet. So we keep, you know, hoping that the future will will provide some magic magic bullet technologically that will allow us to burn gasoline and and stuff without putting as much bad stuff into the air. And so far, we haven't got that magic bullet. So there is a lack of recognition that this is harder than just saying, I make a commitment. And clearly it's harder, but 
it, it seems like if there was a magic bullet, you know, we would have done it already, given the ongoing promises that different levels of government have made. I know that transition for en- in energy supply is going to be a big one. You know, that oil and gas versus hydroelectricity is a big conversation that often pops up. I want to I want to argue with that one. Can I argue a little bit? Absolutely. It's it's not not hydroelectricity alone. It's all electricity, but you know from clean sources. In fact, we're we're kind of we're running short on the hydroelectric uh, area because there aren't a whole lot of big rivers left that we can dam and uh, and get power from. But you know there are other examples like uh, wind turbines and solar power, which come out very clean, uh, but haven't given us enough of the enough of the energy to run you know mainstream uses like people heating people's houses and running industry even on days when there isn't any wind um so it goes beyond hydroelectric to all yeah there is this trend to say let's make everything electric we'll have all electric cars uh we'll have electric building heat um we will get rid of a lot of the the fossil fuel stuff on on those levels but nobody really comes up with this question of where do you get all those electrons from And how do you power the lifestyle that a lot of people have become accustomed to, whether that's having warm homes in the winter or traveling longer distances to and from work or traveling period to get to where you need to go. One of the challenges with hydroelectricity in particular, um, you you mentioned that, you know, we're running out of big rivers to dam. One of the examples of how hard it is to create a dam is the Site C dam in BC. I'm wondering if you can walk us through what's going on there and why that has been a difficult project. Okay, I'll I'll give you the short version. It's, It's a project that would give a little over a thousand megawatts, I believe around uh, 1100 megawatts or 1100 million watts of power, which is a little bit more than one nuclear reactor. Uh, But it means flooding a large chunk of a valley. And people don't want their land flooded and they don't want the river interfered with because a a dammed river is is not a natural river. So there's political opposition to it. And there's there's an energy study group at the University of Ottawa that says, if we really want to turn our um, energy system into a heavily electrified system, electric cars and all that, we would need the equivalent of 120 Site C dams. Now, they're having trouble getting approval for approval for even one. You know, what, what, how, do you, how do you get the next 119 to follow? So that, it isn't just Site C, it's, it's the need for many, many more sources of electricity like it. That's a problem. Uh, the alternative to that is more nuclear stations, and people don't like those very much either, plus they're expensive. Very expensive and uh, have a lot of a lot of baggage associated with them. Do you think nuclear is something that Canada should be pursuing if it wants to meet these goals? I don't think we would hit the targets without more nuclear. But yeah, the the political baggage is enormous. I grew up partly in South Bruce County, which is where there are there are eight reactors there, the the, the Bruce station, uh, two Bruce stations rather side by side. People there are generally okay with it. But if you walk into a new neighborhood now, which ha- does not have a nuclear background, and say we want to put a bunch of reactors here, people are going to fight you, and it takes decades to get them approved. It's almost this perfect storm. You know, we've got, it takes decades to approve new projects that are electricity-based, whether it's nuclear or hydro. In the interim, the solutions that we do have aren't necessarily going to give us enough power to power all of the things that we need to power here in Canada, or at least at the same level we're currently powering them. Given this, we also have all these political promises. I know you covered the Liberals' climate plan last week. What did you hear the Liberals say they will do 
should they get reelected? Well, they say in 30 years, so by 2050, uh, they will bring Canada down to what they call net zero emissions, meaning we, we could still create some emissions, but only if we take an equivalent amount of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere afterwards. So there is some um, developmental technology called uh, uh, carbon storage, uh, carbon capture and carbon storage, which means you take there are machines that can suck this stuff out of the atmosphere, seal it underground, but there's nothing yet that can work on a on a commercial scale. Uh, so once again, we are relying on technology that doesn't exist yet uh, to get the job done. Now, Catherine McKenna, who's been the minister of the environment for four years, she said, "Okay, look at your iPhone or your you know whatever brand of cell phone you've got. It's just unimaginable, unimaginably more." sophisticated than what you had 20 years ago. And she says, look, we, we are going to have huge leap forward in, um, in various methods, various technologies for reducing our emissions. My view is I really, really hope she's right. Uh, but all I can go on so far is a 31-year record from 19, the end of the 80s, early, early 90s to now of making promises and never quite getting there. With one exception, we have found one way of making significant cuts, and that's by having a recession that throws a lot of people out of work. So um, we had a significant drop in emissions in 2008 and nine, Which, you know, that was obviously such a difficult time for a lot of people. I, I mean, a lot of people lost their jobs then. The, the current uh, estimate is more than 100,000 manufacturing jobs in Ontario. And there were big whacks at Ford, General Motors, uh, Chrysler, um, uh, Volvo, BF Goodrich, the tire people, Stelco. Stelco no longer produces steel. When you stop running all those factories or you run them uh, less, then you don't need as much electricity. And that allows you to shut down the big, dirty, coal-burning hydro plants. But you can only do that once. They're shut down now. There's no more room for shutting those down. That's finished. And you've got uh, unemployed people on the street and idle factories. When it comes to that hope, that hope that technology will save us, uh, you know, you've seen, it, it's almost like politicians have been relying on that promise of this magical future bullet that is going to deal this big blow to emissions as we see them right now. Yep. Have they, when you've been covering these announcements over the years, is it always kind of kicking the can down? Oh yeah, we'll, we'll figure this out going forward. We'll figure this out going forward. It seems that it's very difficult for us to take action in the here and the now. And it sounds like that's because that's going to be quite painful for a lot of people. It is. And that's why, you know, the, the two things that I want from politicians now are, first of all, to stop making these election time announcements and making them sound easy and guaranteed. Yes, we can guarantee to do it, uh, you know, accomplishment A by date X. And secondly, what I'd really like from them is some engineering details. So if we're going to stop, if we're going to shift over to electric cars and electric heating and so forth, where does that come from? I want them to tell me, do we need more nuclear stations and how many? I want them to tell me, are wind turbines going to play a big part of this? And if so, where are they going to go and where are they going to cost? Uh, they also talk about developing a next generation of biofuels that will burn cleaner. I want them to tell me these details rather than just saying, okay, we commit to um, such and such a reduction by 2050. And I'm not getting those details at all. So our emissions continue to go up, obviously, something is going to need to be done in order to bring those down. How would you compare what you're hearing from the Liberals to what you're hearing from some of the other parties, the NDP, the Conservatives, the Greens even? 
The Liberals, they're the most ambitious so far, um, you know, saying we are, we are going to go net zero in emissions in 30 years from now. That's, that's huge. Uh, the Greens um, have said they are going to uh, have all electrical generation coming from re- renewables by 2030. So that's basically 10 years from now. Uh, the NDP is a little more vague. They say that once they get into office, then they will set targets based on science uh, for what they're going to do later. They, and they, they come out um, with sort of a, a funny phrase or a funny projection. They say that uh, switching to a greener economy will create 300,000 new jobs. I would love to know where they get that. Because uh, we've been through that before with the provincial liberals in Ontario promising 50,000 new jobs some years back with the Green Energy Plan, Green Energy Act, rather. And did, did, we see, did we see that here in Ontario? No, no. There were some new jobs, but nothing like the 50,000. So without picking a party and saying who's right and who's wrong, I would say there's more detail and more specific stuff in the Liberal program so far. Is that plan, that cutting cutting emissions so we're net zero, is that realistic? Do you think, or what do you think we need to be doing in order to get there? I think it's probably realistic if you finally make carbon capture a successful commercial industry. If there is a way to take the carbon dioxide out and store it as just plain, separate the carbon and the oxygen, I guess, and store the carbon underground, then you're, in a sense, you're recycling. You're, you're taking fuel out of the earth and you're putting the, the carbon back into the earth afterwards. So if you can show me that that's going to work commercially, uh, I'd be very interested in that. And I think that that could make a difference. Um, again, that's that depends on future advancements we haven't really made on a commercial scale yet, although there are small-scale demonstration projects that have been quite successful. Yeah, there is one um, just out in BC, for instance, a company working on just that technology with backing from Bill Gates and what have you. So it, it's looking promising. It mm-hmm. It is. Agreed. When it comes to that sort of that shift. It seems we're at this moment right now, reflecting on all the climate strikes that we've seen students participate in over the past several weeks, um, just thousands of people hitting the streets and really voicing their concern about the climate. What do you think, if, or do you think there is something special about this moment that didn't exist when we were making promises in Paris or Copenhagen or Rio or Kyoto? Do you think there's something different happening right now? Yeah, I, I think I've seen some of this enthusiasm before, and it was 30 years ago. You know, we've been through this cycle of, of uh, protest and, and uh, public demand for fixing this problem back in the late 80s, early 90s, and it sort of faded away a little bit. Um, we'll see if it sticks this time. The one difficulty is, yes, it sure it causes intense political pressure on whoever gets elected, but it doesn't take us one step farther and say, here's the methodology for getting it done. Uh, it's still, you know, you're still sort of at the stage of saying, boy, I hope somebody does something, but I don't know what that is. My analogy is, imagine you've got three or four political parties and they're each committing to achieving world peace. And one of them gives you one timeline and one budget, and the others give you different timelines and and different budgets. And you think, okay, which one do I vote for? And the answer is probably none of them, because nobody knows how to achieve world peace. And I think that's, you know, a little overly simplistic, because we do know some things to do now for climate change. But nobody has the full answer yet. For you, a successful climate platform, is it going to be very engineering focused? What would that look like? 
a successful climate platform would be one that says, I'm going to build the following technology. Here's how it's going to work. Uh, rather than, you know, we're still 31 years into this. We're still having demonstration projects and trials and asking people to come up with ideas and saying, let's spread awareness. Um, a successful platform um, has to be one that says, yes, here's here's the machinery and here's where we're going to build it. Do you see that solution coming from private industry or what role do you see government in funding this kind of innovation? Well, uh, it's it's like uh, space exploration. It's very expensive. So you need, yeah, you need governments to, f- to help fund it. Yeah, I think yes, there are private companies certainly working on this, and the carbon capture is one obvious uh, example. And I'm sure you know car companies are are all competing against each other to see who can have the greatest efficiency. Everybody wants fuel efficiency, but these are those are not yet on a level that's going to reduce our emissions. We do emit less carbon dioxide per person now than we would have say 20 years ago, but there are more of us population today is 35 million in Canada. 20 years ago, there were only 29.6 million. So in 20 years, we've jumped by uh, between five and six million people. So if one person produces less pollution, we've also got more people out there, bigger cities, more roads. Politicians will say, yes, we're here, here in your own hometown of your, your own hometown, Tom, of uh, Ottawa. We're founding uh, light rail transit. That's public transit. Yes, but they're also widening the main expressway through town. So that's more cars as well as public transit. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. You're very welcome. 103 is produced by Carson Jerema. Additional production by Bryce Hall and Elizabeth Mavor. The music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Tom Spears. I'm Emily Jackson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>